All right, today's scripture reading is from John 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the, wa- the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. It is really good to see you. We're so glad you're with us and happy Advent. Uh, I love Advent. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Advent is a time of cultivating our heart for the Lord, our desires and our longings for more of God himself. Some people are are anti-tradition, not us, not here. We are anti-empty tradition. But we are pro any tradition that helps us to cultivate and, and sustain a hunger from God, for God. It's one of the most important things that we do to, to cultivate and attend to that heart for God. I've often said that the most important work that we do in our lives is receiving the love of the Father. Getting that love into our hearts and living according to it. And as we receive His love, as we live into that love... A, a hunger is created within us. It's, it's, it rises up within us. And so this hunger for God, it, it, it can exist. It can be awakened. And Advent is a time for awakening that hunger within us. And so often at Advent, we look at the birth narratives. We look at the, the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' birth. This year, though, what we're doing is we're looking at a number of encounters with Jesus, ordinary people that that are unsuspecting, that that come upon Jesus, either as individuals or as groups, and they have an encounter with the living Son of God. And these encounters are unusual, they're unexpected, they're often uh, funny or confusing, they're often over the top, but they show us something true of who Jesus is. And what he came to do, the nature of his mission. He comes with compassion. He comes with healing. He comes to take what's old and make it new. He comes to take what's empty and make it full and abundant. In John 2, the wedding at Cana, I'll admit it's kind of an odd passage. It's it's a well-known miracle, but its significance doesn't just leap off the page. It's, it's a well-known miracle, but it's, uh, it's unique that this would be the first miracle, right? Of all the miracles Jesus could have done first, why 
is this the first miracle? And further, it seems like Jesus is kind of grumpy or like upset with his mom or something. We'll get into that. But why the wedding at Cana? Why this miracle? I want to suggest that this little passage shows us something profound and unique about our Lord, about who he is, about why he came, and by extension, about what Christmas is all about, what he came to bring in our world. And so let me pray for us and we'll dive right in. Father God, we pray that you would reveal your heart to us this morning. Father, reveal your son to us. Show us the nature of true Christianity and what you're inviting us into. Put in us a heart of love, Father. Give us a holy and burning passion for you. Lord, I'm feeling so weak. My body is feeling so weak. But nonetheless, would you even sustain me and speak your word this morning that we might see you, that we might rejoice in you, we might celebrate in you, we might see this this life that you've come to give us, this abundant life to the full. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so we're going to look at this scene, this, this moment, this wedding, sort of scene by scene. And we'll start with the crisis. It actually says in verse 11, John notes that what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first of the signs that Jesus did. And John uses this word signs to describe miracles. Instead of using the word miracles, he uses the word signs. Seven different times in the Gospel of John, he describes a, a sign that Jesus does. And so what is a sign? It's, it's something that, that points us elsewhere, points us beyond. A sign doesn't exist in itself, but it, it points us to information or, or direction or, or warning. And that's what Jesus' miracles are doing. They're not just things in themselves. They're not just displays of, of power or glory in themselves, but they're meant to point us to something. They're meant to show us something true of who Jesus is and why he's here. Now, why was Jesus' first sign, his first miracle, this, this turning of, of water into wine, of, of all the things he could have done first. I mean, when we, when we started this church, we did a, a big public launch gathering, and we put a lot of thought into it. We knew this is our first public act. And so we wanted it to, to be sort of the best that we could do. We wanted it to, to accurately represent who we are and kind of what's unique about us, what we were going to be like as a church. And so... The sermon text, the, the songs that we chose, you know, it was all a, a way to show people, here's what we're about, here's what we're going to be doing. It's the same with any new business or campaign or effort. You, you want to kind of launch public with what it is that's going to tell people most about you, right? So why wouldn't Jesus, like, give sight to the blind? Why wouldn't he heal a leper, why wouldn't he raise somebody from the dead? Why wouldn't he at least preach a sermon that's, that's clarifying and illuminating? Why turn water into wine at a rural wedding? Like, why use all of your son of God powers on a catering mistake? Now, weddings are huge events in that day and in that culture. They're big now, but they were huge events 
in that culture. And in other cultures, they still are. When, when Jesse and I were in Uganda many years ago, we were invited to a wedding that was literally all day long. You've been to a Catholic wedding three and a half hours? That's got nothing on a Ugandan wedding. We're talking 16, 18 hours long. In other cultures, weddings are still several days long. And in first century Israel, weddings were often seven days long. An entire week of, of festivities and, and feasting and ceremony. Who was invited? What food was served? This was all incredibly important and symbolic. It represented who was close, who was family. It represented acceptance and, and connection and intimacy. And in these weddings, the most important part, the most expensive part was the wine. It was central to the whole event. And so running out of wine was, it would have meant public humiliation. I mean, think about it. This is a shame and honor culture. And so any, anything that, that disrupts the, the honor of the host would have brought great shame on the bride and the groom, great shame on the, the hosting family. It would have communicated a lack of planning, a lack of money, a, a lack of intentionality, a lack of love for their guests. I mean, this could have haunted the bride and groom. It could have haunted the host family for the rest of their lives. And so in this moment, Jesus' compassion rises up within him. It makes sense that Mary would come to Jesus and say simply, they have no wine. This is probably extended family for Mary and Jesus. And so, so she knows the importance. It seems like not everybody realizes that the wine is run out. But she knows who Jesus is. She knows he's the son of God. He has not yet revealed himself to the world. He's not yet gone public with his ministry. He's gathered perhaps a few disciples at this point, but even they don't fully believe, which is what John says in verse 11, that they only believed after this sign. And Mary tells the staff, do whatever he tells you. But in between, verse 5, we get this line, verse 4 from Jesus. He responds to his mom like this, woman, why do you involve me? It seems a little harsh. It seems a little abrupt, a little bit terse. And, and often 30-year-old guys can be like this with their moms. It's not the best quality, especially if you've been, you know, at a family gathering for a few days and it's, it's been a while, you know. Is this like a mom, the meatloaf kind of moment? Like what's going on? Remember that Jesus has perfect self-control perfect self-control. There has to be something deeper, and, and indeed there is. Because the very next words Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses that phrase, my hour, seven times, and the other six times are really clear references to his crucifixion, his death. He's consistently saying, my hour has not yet come. But when it comes, he says, this is my hour. For this hour, I have come. And so in this moment, that's exactly what Jesus is referring to. The moment of his crucifixion, the moment or the hour of his death. And so it's kind of an odd response. His mother says, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, it's not time for me to die yet. Why would he say that? It's not my time to go to the cross yet. It's because he knows the moment he performs this miracle, 
Everything thereafter is moving towards the cross. Everything is moving towards Calvary, and there is no going back. We've been watching this TV show, The Chosen. Not sure if you've heard of it. A couple of you have watched it. Actually, many of you were telling us for years, you've got to see it. It's great. You'll love it. I just kept saying, we don't watch Christian TV. That's great for you. It's not really my thing. Our boys wanted to watch it, and so we decided, all right, we'll give it a chance. And I'm like, dang it, it's good. (laughs) We're like, oh my goodness, like I can't get through an episode without tearing up and just like wiping the snot away. It is so darn good. As we call it, the Chose Bros, (laughs) JC and the Chose Bros, they devote an entire episode to this moment, rightfully so. And it's beautiful in the episode as Jesus is deciding whether to perform this miracle or not. The voice of one of his disciples is is sort of overlaid as Jesus is standing there before the water. And the disciple is is explaining his, his prior work as a stone carver. And he says, once you make that first cut into the stone, it can't be undone. It sets in motion a series of choices. It will never be the same. And so Jesus is faced with this crisis. His compassion rises up within him. This miracle will set in motion a journey that can only end at the cross. Now there's a second thing happening, and and the Chose Bros don't quite catch it, but that's okay. You know, that's why we're here. And that's the the significance of the miracle itself. Jesus isn't just performing a a miracle out of compassion for his family and friends, although that's important. I think he sees this as an incredible opportunity. He's at a wedding. They've run out of wine. The people are in need. This is actually the perfect moment because so many themes are overlapping at once. Jesus sees this opportunity to teach us something about who he is and what he has come to do. This is better than multiplying loaves of bread. It's better even than a leper coming up to him in that moment and asking for healing. This crisis, the lack of wine, is the perfect place for his first ever miracle. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons. Now, these are very large ceremonial jars that were part of the Old Testament law. The Hebrews would use these to, to clean their hands and to clean themselves before any kind of sacrifice, any kind of offering, any kind of festival before coming into the temple. And so these jars represent human sinfulness. They represent our need for cleansing, our need to be made clean before we approach a holy and perfect God. Jesus is drawing our attention to our sin, to our incredible need of him as Messiah. By changing the water to wine in these Hebrew cleansing jars, he is pointing to his whole mission He's saying the old has gone and the new is here. He's saying, in effect, I will be your cleansing. I will be your offering. You've been doing these cleansing rituals over and over and over, but I will take away your guilt once and for all. I will finally and fully take away 
your shame. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And just casually it notes in verse 9, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. I mean, almost offhand, we learn that this miracle has happened almost as if we assume that it's going to happen or we know that it's taken place. These jars are suddenly filled with 150 gallons of wine, an insane amount of wine, right? I mean, no wedding, no matter how big or how many days long, has ever needed 150 gallons of wine, like ever. Half a 30-gallon jar would have been way too much. That, that would have made the point, and there would have been so much left over. Jesus commands all six to be filled to the brim. I got to wondering this week, like, what happened with the rest of the wine afterwards? I mean, there are still six full jars of wine at the end of this whole wedding. Like, are there still two and a half left, you know, in Cana of Galilee? They're still 2,000 years later sipping off of it, maybe? See, wine isn't just important in Hebrew culture. It is a, a theme and a symbol throughout the scriptures. It represents celebration, joy, peace, abundance. And yet the, the symbol will shift later in John's gospel. When Jesus gathers his disciples for his last meal with them before the cross, finally his hour has come and he takes a cup of wine and he says, this wine is the new covenant. It is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. He's identifying the wine with this Old Testament image of the cup of God's wrath, which will be poured out on sin. Jesus is saying, I'm going to drink the cup of God's judgment. I'm going to drink it all the way to the bottom. I will take the penalty and I will take all of it. And so back to the wedding, the people get the wine, this abundant outpouring of joy and peace and celebration. It says, verse 9, the master of the banquet called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the, the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. The master of the banquet was an important role, especially in a, a wedding that was seven days long. That, that phrase can also be literally translated the ruler of the banquet or perhaps Lord of the feast. And when he tastes the wine, he praises the groom. He praises the whole family. Tim Keller, when he's preaching on this passage, he says, this is the gospel. Jesus does all the work and you get all the credit. This is exactly what the wine represents. Why Jesus performs this miracle. It's a foreshadowing that only Jesus could pull off all of these themes being brought together. Jesus will take the oversized jars of our sin and he will take it on himself. He will make us clean. He will take what's old and make it new. He will take what's empty and fill it to the brim. 
Jesus will take the cup of God's wrath so that we can get the wine of the feast. He's going to raise the cup of the curse to his lips so that we can raise the cup of blessing to ours. He will shed his blood and become nothing so that we get 150 gallons of abundant, true, eternal life. It's amazing, right? There's one more thing, one more sacred symbol that makes this moment so perfect, and it's, it's the wedding itself. At this wedding feast, Jesus truly is the master of the banquet. Remember, this is the miracle that he chooses to announce and begin his whole mission at a wedding. It's supposed to show us what's true of him, what he's bringing to us. And it's a way for Jesus to say that true religion, it's, it's not following the rules, it's not becoming moral people. At its very essence, being with Jesus is a banquet. It's a party. Christianity is not an empty ceremonial jar. It's a cup full of wine. And you remember in, in the Gospels when the Pharisees, they, they condemned Jesus' disciples for picking the heads of grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus turns and he, and he says to the Pharisees, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. And he looks at them intently and says, So I tell you, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's as if he's saying the same thing here. He's saying to the world, man was not meant for wine, not meant to shed his own blood. Wine was made for man. And so I tell you, the Son of Man is Lord of the feast, Lord of the wedding. See, weddings also are a significant thing in the story of our redemption. The Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis 2 as Eve is presented to Adam. Jesus starts his ministry at a wedding. And in Matthew 9, another occasion where Jesus is questioned by the religious leaders, they're asking him why his disciples don't fast. He says this, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. You see, what Jesus is saying is that he is the groom, and we are his bride. Could it be that at this wedding in Cana, Jesus is thinking of his own wedding? Of course, Jesus wasn't married in his time on earth, but Jesus was looking forward to his wedding. Because at the end of all time, that's exactly what happens. All of the story of redemption reaches its climax with a wedding in Revelation 22. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. At the end of all generations, the entire church, the global church from every century, we will come forth as a bride dressed purely in white, all of our blemishes covered to be married to the son, to the groom, to Jesus. This might feel a little odd or a little uncomfortable, especially for us guys, but think of the significance. A bride in, in pure white 
representing a spotless, no-blemish, perfect presentation for the groom. And the groom, Jesus, cannot wait for his bride to come down the aisle, cannot wait to embrace her, cannot wait to start his new life with her. And Jesus is saying, that's who I am and that's who you are. This is how Jesus feels about you. Jesus longs for you. He can't wait for the day when he can have you in full. But he knows and he's thinking in this moment, before he can have his own wedding, he has to go to the cross. The only way that he can drink the wine of abundance forever is if he first drinks the wine of judgment. He has to drink the cup of death before he can have his own cup of life. He's saying, in essence, the wine of this world has run out and there will be no joy, no celebration, no feast unless I intervene. It's exactly why Jesus came. And I love that the banquet master says, you've saved the best for last. And it's true. Because all along, throughout the whole Old Testament, God has been revealing himself to his people. He led them out of slavery. He gave them his word. He gave them the, the prophets. He gave them festivals and traditions, but he saved the best for last. Finally, he sends his own son into the world. There are a lot of different ways we could go with, with application this week, but I'll keep it simple. The number one thing for us in this text is simply to surrender, surrender our hearts to this Jesus. Not just surrender our, our minds, our intellect, not just surrender our, our will or our obedience, but surrender our very hearts, our desires, our longings, our, our affections. Bring your passion and your purpose before Jesus. This is the message of Christmas, that he doesn't just come with, with the minimum necessary salvation. Like just to, to forgive us of enough of our sins to get us out of hell. Jesus came to bring us life, 150 gallons, over the top, way more than we could ever consume, an abundant type of life. And it's just classic Jesus that, that he does the miracle in this place. I mean, not in, not in Jerusalem, not in the temple, not among successful and smart people, but he does his first miracle at a rural wedding among people who mostly don't even realize what's just happened. It's the same way he came into the world in a manger to, to a poor family in the middle of nowhere because he doesn't need recognition. He doesn't need fame. He's simply come for his bride. He's come to get us back. And one day we will have a wedding day. We will experience him in all his glory. We will have the wine that never runs out. But even now he's inviting us, inviting us to the table. We don't have to wait till that day to receive the wine that he has for us. We don't have to settle for bread and water in this life. Jesus is the true wine. Draw near to him, delight in him, feast on him, surrender your very heart to him. 
Jesus did all of the work so you could get all of the credit. He took the cup of death so you could take the cup of life. Jesus took the cup or the shame of the cross so that you could be covered in white, sin-free and radiant in his sight. Jesus came to take the empty things of our world and turn them into a never-ending wedding feast. Why would we settle for water when we can have this everlasting wine? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are, you are too good for us. We can hardly understand it and hardly believe that you would have all of this for us. That in this, this wedding, in all of these themes coming together, this great feast, that you would see our need and our lack and you know that it is no match for who you are. And you are even drawn to our need. You're drawn to our lack and our emptiness. You say, blessed are those who lack, for they will be filled. And so, Father, I, I think especially of, of those of us who are, who are acutely aware of our own need and our own lack or our own emptiness, perhaps even our own dryness or, or sort of boredom with spiritual things. Lord, how much we, we not only need the daily bread and water, but we need your wine overflowing in our lives. Lord, we want more of you. We want more passion for you, more hunger for you. We want a greater experience of who you are. Glorify yourself in and through us by, by showing us who you are and letting us feel and know the great love that you have for us. Father, what you are doing in our midst is, a, is an incredible work, an incredible outpouring of grace, and we just say more, Lord. Give us more of your wine. Give us more of your presence. Give us more of your power. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.